So last week, we um, heard the beginning of God's true story of the whole world. This genesis of everything good that we see when we look around. It's a world filled with potential and made for flourishing and teeming. It's a world made from the overflow and love uh, and the very delight of the triune God. This week, though, we find in that origin story that good creation has become corrupt. Jana alluded to it a little bit. This thread of corruption runs through everything. The environment that bears the scars of humanity's failures, broken homes, war, violence, suspicion, coercion, our corrupted psyches, mistaken collective memories. This is like a seemingly endless spiral, this downward loop of destruction and despair, and it really can be overwhelming. I like the idea of laying, laying on a deck and looking upward, like that, that resonates. It, it, it can feel so desperate. Yeah, if your eyes work, the world really does feel that broken sometimes. And yes, if you're honest with yourself, well, I'll, I'll speak in the first person. If I'm honest with myself, I'm part of that brokenness. I'm part of the cause. I'm, I'm also one of the victims. Welcome to the world as we know it. God's good world corrupted by sin and death. We, we have this narrative um, at the end of Genesis 2, just that last line uh, in, into the third chapter. The two of them were naked. This is Adam and Eve, the man and his wife. But they weren't embarrassed. They weren't ashamed. The snake was one of the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that to you, that you shouldn't eat from the, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. And the snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day that you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful and delicious food Uh, with delicious food, and that the tree would provide wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it, and then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. So these words begin to describe the problem, these certainties. Almost as certain as death and taxes is good creation and the corruption of that good creation. We have to hold these two things together. Only If you only say one of them, that creation is good, or that creation is broken and we're going to hell in a handbasket, that's not true unless we hold those two truths together at the same time. To do this requires some of the tools that we began to talk about last week. It requires gratitude. It requires lament. Gratitude and lament are our main tools here. Gratitude is thanksgiving for abundance and biodiversity. 
and life and curiosity born out of that gratitude for people and places and things. And lament helps us to give voice to the ways that these people and these places and these things, especially ourselves, are cracked and set in opposition against each other rather than growing in harmony with and for each other. So that last verse in Genesis, um, that little phrase before it all comes crashing down, says, Adam and his wife, they were both naked, but they had no shame. They were both naked and they had no shame. That, that feels like, like, um, like a dog-eared um, uh, moment in their scrapbook. That's something that they'll often reference back to but can't go all the way back to. When we think of shame, especially having to do with our own nakedness, we often think of it as some sort of guilty feeling that causes us to retreat or cover up. We either isolate ourselves because we don't feel like we're enough, or we throw ourselves at people and things, careers and distractions so that we don't have to deal with some sort of deep-seated sense that we're not good enough or we're not beautiful enough or we're not smart enough or maybe we're just not enough enough. But biblical shame's a little, a little different. It's got a slightly different cast and maybe it's a little more radical. It's, it's, it's rooted a little more deeply because biblical shame, um, that what Adam and Eve didn't have but gained through their obedience was not just some sort of like um, uh, shyness or pity party. No, it is they felt abandoned or deserted or alienated by God. They felt, maybe for the first time, um, they felt ashamed. They felt shame. They felt strung out on a limb. They felt hemmed in by their enemies. They felt vulnerable with no help coming. This is all language through the Psalms. Check out Psalm 89 or 35 or uh, even 25. It says, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous and without cause. This sort of shame is abandonment shame. It's alone shame. Maybe some of you all have felt that this week. Adam and Eve were with God. They were clothed by God. At least, like... Uh, metaphorically, with God's love and care and grace, it hadn't even occurred to them that they needed anything more because they had more than enough. It's only when they stopped taking God at God's word, that very word that created them, that things started to unravel. That sin entered the world along with death. That they began to feel shame of feeling exposed, feeling naked. So they began to feel alone together. <laughs> and this, this sort of loneliness gives birth to a legacy of sin. And, and when I say sin, I, I don't want us to like recoil. Like church people are like programmed to think of sin and like, it's, uh, if you've seen Lion King lately, it's like Mufasa and they recoil the, you know, sin and, and we recoil. No, sin is just like, it is a thing in this world. It, 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 it is, it, this world is shaped by it. Uh, it is something that 
we wouldn't know otherwise because it was so deeply formative and ingrained to us. And so in some ways we, we need to very much take sense seriously, but also um, get used to dealing in this world that is um, affected by sin and death. Um, and we need to get used to and be able to identify that in our own lives, the ways that that affects us, the, way, the ways we don't know any other way of being, the ways that sin that we didn't even do that has happened generations before us continues to ripple and affect who we are and how we are in this world. I love, there's this author, British author, um, kind of writes like a theological Ricky Gervais or something, right? Uh, his name's Francis Spufford. And he, um, in trying to talk about sin and trying to use language that his like post-Christian Brits could, um, could actually like uh, not just check at the door and had to explore further, he talks about sin as the human propensity to F word things up. The human propensity to foul things up. And it takes many forms, this human propensity. Just a few of these forms. I don't think this list is exhaustive, but I think these are like basic forms of the ways that we experience sin in our lives. And trust me, we all have custom ways of sinning, right? Sin, <laughs> sin it's, it's so funny that we know of sin as original sin because sin is like the least original thing. We, we just all have our own versions of it, right? First is that we're prideful. And I think that, that's something we inherited. Adam and Eve's mistake was the pride of thinking that they knew better than God. The, their, Eve is haggling with this snake and just like trying to find the loophole, right? Trying, trying to be convinced in some ways. And the sad irony for them and for us is that they elected for the very shame that they got. And strangely, God, in God's grace, kind of gives us what we want. It's, it's sad and it's ironic, but, but God is so generous that sometimes we get what we want, even if it's not exactly what God wants. So they disobeyed God, and they failed to submit to what God wanted for them, to trust in God's care, and so God kind of backs off a little bit. C.S. Lewis contends that pride leads to every other vice. He says pride leads to every... Every other vice, it's the complete anti-God state of mind. It's pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, every family since the world began. And part of God's strange mercy when we trust in God is that we slowly start to have this pride unraveled and, pre and reprogrammed. When we start to get to know God and what God is like, and who we are and who God is making us to be, one of the first things that kind of gets hurt is our pride. One of the, one of the first things that, that um, starts to crumble, especially when you become a parent, and for many of our parents, we know like, that is one of the maybe first times in a while that you've like, leaned back very hard into God for help and wisdom, and it's often because all of the things that we thought we knew about ourselves and should be true about our families, we don't know how to do and we don't have enough to make happen on our own strength. And so our pride starts to shrink. It starts to crumble. The, the, the more you know God and the closer you get to God, the more fragile your pride should start to get. And that actually shouldn't be a bad thing. 
our sources of pride, our boasts get fewer, they get further between, they get less and less significant compared with the God who is with us and who has done great things for us. Pride is kind of the, um, it's the sort of posture also that winds up really hurting, it kind of flows downhill and it really hurts the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. And included in those categories is God's creation, which often can't fight back for itself. This happens because pride centers ourselves. It, again, it isolates as part of that shame quotient. Rather than finding ourselves in this intricate network and community of creation, finding yourself on a deck looking up at the trees or finding yourself in a national park field with a murmuration. Is that what that's called? Is it a murmuration? It's pretty cool. It's like kind of an onomatopoeia, right? Uh, a murmuration of birds beholding God's majesty and God's creative glory. We isolate and we try to make things happen for ourselves. Richard Bauckham says that somewhere in the fall, humanity forgot our own creatureliness, forgot that we were also created. Our embeddedness within creation, our interdependence on other creatures, that's part of this fall. That's part of our pride. And for um, anthropologists and, and, and um, uh ecological studies, we're, we're actually in a whole new era in the whole history of, of the world called the Anthropocene era. That, that means that for the first time ever, things are changing on a global and world and universal scale because of our presence and our activities. Like that, that accounts for climate change, that accounts for all these things. And you can't tell me that that, that, that isn't like an amazing signal for human pride, that, that we, um, this ecological world, this world of creation that we've st stood inside of and with, now we're standing over and there are massive consequences. Our human propensity to become these centers of gravity displaces and disrupts things around us. This happens relationally too. You, you, we all know people, and maybe some of us are those people, who are the centers of gravity in their lives, and that's a really disruptive place to be close to that. In some ways, we've taken our job really seriously in this. Remember that job that God gave us, be fruitful and multiply, stand in dominion over creation? Because God has included us in this project of populating and cultivating, but it's never been about us at all. My Old Testament teacher, Ellen Davis, she understands this Genesis account, this priestly creation account as poetry that understands the charge given to humanity, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, as a directive for humans to practice skilled mastery. Practice skilled mastery, but only within the context of the blessing of the animals, of the divine gift of the land provided for all creatures to a loving creator. So <laughs> we only get this job with the rest of creation and for the rest of creation. This language functions to establish a unique role for, for humanity, but, but also affirming a sense of our communal membership with other creatures. 
So the pride that we inherit from our forerunners, which we all have our own custom ways of manifesting, we're really good at that, God's spirit begins to gradually and gently reshape us into God's image in Christ. And, and, and as, we're, as, as we start to have that displaced and dislodged, we can grow in gratitude. Because when you're prideful, who needs to give thanks? When you're the boss, you don't have to thank anyone. Or who has time to move in fear and trembling when moving fast and breaking things is our prerogative? It's something I'm allowed to do. Who needs curiosity and wonder when mastery is available to us? Each of us has more computing power in our pockets, more public voice in our apps, more money in our bank accounts than most of the history of humanity who have ever walked the earth. But to grow in gratitude is to shrink our pride and to re-embed ourselves into creation. I suggest um, kind of a pro tip, one of the ways to begin to do this this week um, is to start to invest in relationships of mutuality. That, that means like you're not the boss, you're also not the peon. It's also called friends and neighbors, like those are things. Invest in these friendships, invest in neighborly relationships in a place over a long period of time. This will start to displace your pride, I promise. Because you're going to have to learn this improvisational way of being with people. You're gonna to have to listen. Listening is a great exercise to get rid of pride rather than talking so much. Um, and you're gonna to have to respond and learn to be responsive, grow muscles of responsiveness in um, the ability to notice. So for as headstrong as this prideful picture of humanity is, the weird thing is it's not as strong as, it, as the front we put forward is. Another part of sin is that we're, we're kind of unsure. We're kind of fragmented. We're kind of divided even inside of ourselves. We often think we know what to do, or at least if we knew what to do, we would definitely do it. Aren't humans rational? Children are not. Adults are not. I mean, if my coworker knew how difficult he was being to the rest of the whole office, he would knock it off, right? If I could just play back a re recording of my wife's voice right now, she would definitely apologize and this whole thing would just be squared, right? I, I think I tried that one time and it didn't work. How I thought it would. For those type A people in the room, the goal-oriented people, if you just have instructions or a PowerPoint slide on how to love your neighbor as yourself, you'll do it right every time, right away. For people with addictive tendencies, not just like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but like iPhones and other things, I can quit any time. I just don't want to, it's just not time, right? Or like, we can always make a New Year's resolution to get fit, six pack abs, here we come, right? None of these are true, they're so ridiculous scenarios, we, we like kind of chuckle at them because we know how absurd they are because humans 
on this side of our ancestors' fall, we're all so divided. We're all so fragmented. Our hearts are aimed everywhere. When we teach this in our um, baptism catechism class, the image we have is, is that, that we image God as a tilted mirror to and from creation, and that the fall shatters that mirror so that our, our loves and our desires are askew. They're fragmented. They don't even go where we're desiring to aim them at anymore perfectly. And that God is in the process of mending that. Romans 7 has the famous Paul version of this where he, he's sitting still long enough to, to recognize this in himself. He says, for, the desire, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep doing that. And now I do what I do not want to do, and there is no longer what I want to do, but it's sin living in me that does it. Nice, Paul. I think this makes it hard for us to lament, this sort of fracture and fragmentedness. But that's okay, because I think lament lives in a vague space where we begin to name what is wrong or what we think is wrong, and we begin to hope for what is better, even if we don't know what that quite possibly could be yet. Oftentimes, sitting down to write a lament, try that this week. Blank piece of paper, pen is all you need. Sometimes when you do that, though, and I'll do that with my right hand. Uh, sometimes when you do that, it reveals that you actually don't totally know what is wrong or how to fix it. And that's kind of scary to us. That we walk around kind of uh, heavy from the things that are wrong around us and in us and in our world. But then when we sit down long enough to try to name it to God, sometimes we don't even know what we're supposed to be naming or how to name it or who the bad guy is because it's a lot more complicated than that. I think that's okay, because lament is not primarily pragmatic. It's not about getting a plan so that we can get this thing right. I think lament is primarily doxological, and, and that's a big word for it's primarily a worship thing. It reorients our broken affections towards God. It dislodges some of the things that are causing us pain to begin to journal our lament doesn't immediately solve anything, but it can start to right-size problems. It can start to right-size God. It can thrust the ball into God's court where it belongs. If you start to read the lament psalms, this is what is happening, and there's often sort of a dynamic trajectory and shift. In this way, lament is really great for situational ambiguity which is like our lives. It squashes our own triumphalism, our desire to win at all costs, and it stands to highlight the God who is already here and is already working, often in the midst of pain, especially in the midst of pain. Lament's a really great instrument in our faith toolbox to, to reunite ourselves to God's heart and to access God's vision for creation, to remember that. 
So we're selfish, we're fragmented, and I think we're also enslaved by sin. And this is, this is a really sneaky trick of sin. Sin has a way of capturing us and closing the loop. Sin enlists us and then makes us do the work. In 1973, this is always great because uh, people are getting younger in this congregation, so some of these things that used to, everyone knew what they were, these are like new sermon fodder, right? In 1973, there was a bank robbery in, in Stockholm, Sweden. It lasted six days, and there was um, hostage, there were hostages and captors. And at the end of it, these hostages refused police assistance. This, this is Stockholm Syndrome, you know? This is where we get that phrase. Um, these hostages were freed, but instead they chose to defend these criminals that put their lives in danger. This surely describes something like what happens in what sin is capable of for us. We, we go back to behaviors and, and we can't quit some of these things that we really detest about ourselves and about our world and our involvement in them. Sometimes we even lack an ability to know how to get out of it or it just becomes our new normal. I know that's like a really bleak outlook. That sin is inevitable, sin, sin is terminal. We haven't really scratched the surface on all the ways that this brokenness is part of a vast network of brokenness. It's like a amplifying factor throughout all creation. Our environment, our systems, our government, good things gone awry, this is how the powers and principalities work. But Romans 8 begins to give us a, a little glimpse of some of the good news, a, a picture whereby our liberation comes to us and hope is available for us. Not, by, not that we're devastated by this inextricable enemy known as sin and death, but somehow we're being remade into the types of people who can walk with God in the garden of creation again. One's not separate from the other. One's not separate from creation, but embedded in creation, groaning for help and healing. We groan with and as creation. I think we have Romans eight. Yeah, uh, this is a, a section of probably one of the best chapters ever written. It says, "I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless." with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it, but in the hope that creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole, cre the whole creation, again, this is, this is a picture that we're included in the whole creation, not standing over or aside from it, is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation, we ourselves who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We're saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see, but if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. 
to wait in hope and with patience is to have that, that suffering, our suffering and the suffering of the world, converted. It's, it's to have it changed. It, it, it's to have it become a calling for peace, of putting these pieces together, of eliminating and alleviating suffering for others. That work is it's often slow and small and boring. It's stringing together a bunch of small acts that actually wind up together to be a big thing, that we work with others for larger changes towards shalom. Creation itself groans with labor pains for liberation from sin and death. We so often over-theologize that statement, the wages of sin and death, when in all actuality, it's not hard to see the math playing out every day as a result of our pride, our selfishness, our dividedness, our enslavement. But God doesn't leave it at that. God's grace doesn't abandon us. We are not put to shame. We are clothed in God's mercy. It's the opposite of feeling naked and ashamed, but it's not going back. It's not going back to this naked and unashamedness. We're, we're, we're comfortable in clothes that God provides us. The mercy of God's own son, Jesus. I'm reminded, and, and we'll close here, I'm reminded of this, um, this really great poem by a poet named Maggie Smith called Good Bones, and I think it strikes all the chords of doubt and lament and fear that I have as a parent who is in this sinful world and has sin. In this uh, poem, this place is a metaphor for this place, <laughs> um, but also every place, all creation. Imagine being like represented with this place um, as like a realtor presents a place and tries to like sell you on a place that's like kind of not in good shape. Bright siding won't work, but hope is a necessity and it's a possibility all the same. Even the kind of hope you have to repeat to yourself, even the kind of hope that you have to talk yourself into or be talked into. So I'll close with this Maggie Smith poem. It's called Good Bones. She says, life is short, though I keep this from my children. It's so like hopeful and realistic. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious and ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll also keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird, and every loved child is a broken child bagged and sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger, there is also one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them this world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real crap hole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. So Jesus gives us new life in the possibility of reconciliation with the God we walk away from, but now we can walk with. 
And reconciliation means being re reunited with this God of creation. It means being reunited with ourselves, with each other, and with this good and broken place, even in our sin. Just at the right time, Jesus saved sinners like us. God showed up to be with us. Despite our propensities to foul it up, this place could be beautiful. This place. This place is beautiful. God doesn't sell us this place. God doesn't keep things from his children. God gives us this place as a gift and remakes it, refashions us, um, refashions it into a home for us. Will you all pray with me? God, we give you thanks that you are not scared away by or surprised by sin and brokenness, um, but you, you gravitate towards it. You um, fill in these cracks. You um, slowly and gently and carefully bend us back to you and rehab us and um, bring about goodness and beauty in this place through us as neighbors, as friends, as siblings in Christ. Lord, open us up to you in that work. Um, make us brave and clear-eyed when you show us things about ourselves and our world that we don't like and help us hold together those practices of thanksgiving and gratitude and, and, uh, and also lament that you might form in us hearts that know how to hope. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.